Hello, hello, welcome to this, the second episode of this Book of Boba Fett review series. My name is Sean Peterbudge and I'm here to talk about the tribes of Tatooine, written of course by John Favreau again, the creative mind behind pretty much all the good stuff going on with Star Wars at Disney just at the moment, obviously aired on Wednesday, um, so got this one out on a quick turnaround, I thought we'd try to get it done as quickly as possible and see if that makes a difference. Last week's episode was well received, which was very, very kind of those who listened. Um, If you are listening to this and do enjoy it, please do get in touch. Let me know what you thought. Let me know what you've made of the series so far, the episode in general, the review chat we're going to have here today. Um, Obviously, always love to hear from you, so do please get in touch. Um, We'll start off with the plot of episode two, The Tribes of Tatooine, which was uh, an episode with a cool, the title's got a bit of a double meaning to it, which we'll get into as we unpack the show. Um, This episode starts with Fennec Shand escorting one of the assassins who made an attempt on Bobba's life last week to an audience with Bobba with why and who for the questions at the top of his and our lists. The assassin doesn't want to talk, however, but is eventually cajoled to by the threat of an encounter with a certain palace pit-dwelling beast. The reveal is that last week's attack on Fett's life was orchestrated by the mayor of Mos Espa, and Boba immediately seeks an audience with him. But the mayor protests his innocence, claiming that he has no motive to kill Boba, so clearly the new dynamic between law and order has some way to go, with teething problems centering mainly around trust, somewhat understandably. Uh, it is suggested that the hit was actually arranged by the cousins of Jabba the Hutt, members of the powerful Hutt crime syndicate, and they've come to town to claim what they believe to be theirs, which is, of course, control of this territory. The standoff between Fett, Shand, the Huts, and their mercenary sort of Wookiee, I suppose, hitman um, ends without resolution when the Huts determine that bloodshed is good for nobody. But they leave having convinced no one that this is where the conversation and the conflict is going to end. In flashback, which of course is the uh, the B storyline, if you will, um, we pick up Bobber's continuing integration into the Tuscan Raider tribe, and it is during a skirmish with a rival group that Fett's sense of duty, established last week, continues to grow. Now, compelled to help his new allies, he sets out to teach and prepare them how to fight and reclaim their lands from the tyranny and or oppression of others. So, that is the basic plot. As such, hopefully not too many spoilers in there for you. It plays out over about 50-odd minutes. Uh, I just want to have a bit of a chat generally about kind of the overview and the framing of you know Disney's TV properties and how they some ills of the past or errors of the past could hopefully be avoided this time around. Maybe signs to look out for that it's getting a little bit um, out of shape. But they've got this habit, Disney+, Plus, of being really up and down or uneven with their pacing, I use that term a lot, I'm very, I realise I speak about pacing with everything I talk about, but it is important, you know, not just what the plot is, how it plays out, what beats are emphasised, what information is conveyed in what order, how quickly it is, does it have time to breathe, does it have time to build up, obviously is there a significant or satisfying payoff at the end of it all, and one of the problems that I've found that a lot of their, their stuff has had the Star Wars stuff, the Marvel stuff and the like, is that not enough happens for too long and then often what does eventually happen wasn't worth the wait. They can be all sizzle and no steak, all set up and no payoff. So each new show has to obviously establish and then settle into a rhythm. And with regard to the way that this one's playing out, just at the moment, 
I'm not 100% on board, or sure I should say, that the Westworld style alternating timelines, sort of framing device that they've gone for, is the best way to go. You could argue that it's probably the only way to go, because telling the story in a linear fashion is just a bit cumbersome, in the sense that it doesn't allow you to sort of change gears as readily, to, to mix up the plotting as regularly, um, you know, to engage the audience with, okay, we're here now, we're there now, we've gone back, we've gone, you know, forward. So I understand that completely. But it's only my, my, my misgivings if you are only because framing like this runs the risk of one storyline being particularly engaging or more so than the other one. So in the case of tonight, one storyline dominates the other both in terms of interest, probably, really, and more particularly in terms of the runtime. And then because of that, that particular storyline ends up being, you know, more narratively satisfying. So I I thought that this week the present-day stuff was a little bit underdone. It was fine for what it was, and it kept that side of the story moving. But it was overshadowed by the flashback stuff being so good. So now you've got a situation that the balance is just a tiny bit out of whack because... The flashback story has moved along. I suppose it has to move along because we eventually the narratives have to catch up and when we have to progress into a into a wholly present day, quote unquote. Um, you know, probably finale. We can't be sort of living in both timelines for the whole season. But just at the moment you've got to kind of going, oh, that present day story just was sort of left hanging a little bit, left with probably a little bit too much set up, a little bit too much okay, well I suppose we're just leaving that one here then. Whereas the flashback stuff really motored along in a really sort of particularly you know satisfying way. Then as a sidebar to that um, commentary about you know what Disney Plus are doing, and this doesn't just extend to Disney Plus, but you've really got to know what kind of film or TV show that you're making. You know it's it's not just enough to go what's the story. It's like when does it take place? Who's involved? Where do you need to start it? Where does it need to get to at the end of each chapter or plot point or episode or the like act? You know, sometimes you can course correct. You know, sometimes you can do that. You can kind of pick up that something's not quite tracking like and how it needs to and and fix it. Sometimes seeing it play out alerts you to that and you can go back and kind of fix it in a subtle way, which, which makes a really big difference. But sometimes, you know, it's really hard to get the train back on the tracks if it's sort of skewed or or wandered too far from. So, I mean, being really clear on all of that is really, really vital. And, you know, Disney have had a lot of issues with with that when it comes to Star Wars when, you know, since they've relaunched the property. I mean, for instance, you know, they've got a, a TV show about Cassie and Andor, which, which they're making, and you're kind of like, why? You know, a supporting character from a film that was okay, and by the time that film comes out... You know, it's going to be like, sorry, the TV show comes out. The film's going to be like six years old. And you're kind of going, he's a character that we can talk about and explore in further properties and, and the like, books, and cartoons, and in this case, a TV show, no problems at all. But he shouldn't be the central character. The show shouldn't be about him. My immediate response to that was, no, you've got to, you've got to make like a spark of rebellion to borrow a, a rebel's... Um, episode title, you've got to borrow like a spark of rebellion style thing and produce a series that focuses on the two or three years leading up to A New Hope. You know, young Princess Leia, Bail Organa, Mon Mothma, 
you know, take us to Alderaan, show us Alderaan. This is a is a planet that in the lore of Star Wars means so much, but we've been there for, we've seen the planet for 15 seconds at the end of Revenge of the Sith, and then it gets blown up in the next film. It's an incredible story beat that it matters so much and means so much when we actually have pretty, we have no real reason, no connection to the joint, to be honest. Because at the time it gets blown up, we've just met Princess Leia. Sympathise that her planet gets destroyed. Or you, we accept the magnitude of the how and the why it gets destroyed and what that means, but at the same time you're like, could have just been any planet. So, you know, fill in those gaps. Have it be a, a real, you know, story of the rebellion building, which we've seen in, in little glimpses here and there. Tell that story. Don't focus it on a frankly run-of-the-mill you know, mediocre character. So I just feel that a show where he's the lead is potentially a bad idea. You know, when they were making the Solo film, which as I spoke about last week, probably could have been a TV show. If they had waited a little bit, it might have become a TV show. Could have worked better in that format. They hired the guys that made, you know, 21 and 22 Jump Street. And then they're surprised that they're making a strange, quippy comedy. Like, it's sort of going, no, you've got to know what, you got to know what you're making and who you're hiring to make it and then what you're going to get as a result of that. That's just basic. And then taking, you know, talking about from a Harry Potter lens, the Wizarding World series makes sense because you've got these eight movies which were crazy popular, made crazy amounts of money. Um, don't just have the IP be done and dusted and leave it there on the shelf forever. Like, I get the idea of exploring that world more. It's such a rich world. It's such a vast world, you know, in terms of locations and characters and story to tell but they did it with fantastic beasts and where to find them like i've I've long had this thing with that film where it's not terrible but you're kind of sitting there and you're like at some point well i reckon relatively late in production they realize the film doesn't have a villain the series doesn't have a villain the series doesn't have a heading where's it going to after this and someone went we need an antagonist, don't we? So that's how we got the like the Scooby Doo. Johnny Depp was the bad guy. He was Grindelwald all along, you know. Reveal, and what that opened the door for them to do is introduce characters that we actually care about, you know, like Dumbledore. Hence, they inadvertently fall ass backwards at the eleventh hour into what the film should have always been about—a young Dumbledore. You're kind of like, yeah, you got here. I reckon you got here by accident. My suspicion is that was not what these films were going to be about when you started to make them. Not maybe even this early, maybe eventually, but you but you realise, oh, jeez, this is, this is a bit flat, isn't it? Like, what is this? Why do people care about this? You've got to give us a reason to care about it with characters we care about or instances in their lives or things that have been hinted at before that you can explore. And that's what, if you posit, and or as a as a as a rebels show you're like yeah that makes perfect sense give us characters we like and love and don't know much about from this particular period of time it's what you're doing with boba fett it's working okay at the moment um i've actually long had this theory making a star wars podcast about um, about ballers remember that 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 should have been segued into an entourage spin-off like that's again like just misunderstanding the show you're making. You, their financial planners, why is that interesting? Just make them sports agents, and then when The Rock doesn't want to do the show anymore, hand it over to Ari Gold. 
have them tee up a meeting with an investor or someone, a fixer, you know, a consultant in LA, and they get to LA and it's revealed to be Ari Gold. Then it becomes his show moving forward. It becomes an entourage spin-off. Done. You've made the show you should have made all along, and you've actually made it more interesting in the process. Anyway, the point of it is, know what you're doing, what kind of show, what beats you need to prioritise. And, I mean, ultimately people, you know, particularly fans, we, we know who Boba Fett is, but we don't know who he is. There's so much about this guy and who he is, you know, what he's done, where he's been, that's such an unknown. And because of that, it's a really sort of overwhelming canvas on which you can paint on, which means it's really easy to get sidetracked or lose narrative focus or get bogged down in something that probably isn't terribly important because you think it might work out or might be something that can maybe lead to something else. You bite off more than you can chew. So the key is to know the story you're telling, where you want it to go. And positively, with Boba Fett, so far it seems like we've got a heading. You know, through two episodes, it's done some nice world and character building. Um, And that's really the heavy lifting to get us to a place where the narrative can sort of flow. They've, They've... filled in a few of the blanks from his backstory, which is really, really important. That's informed who he is, how he is the way he is, um, and, that, and that's really integral, to be honest. So a big, big positive through two episodes of the show is they've reached a stage now where hopefully they can really start to stretch their legs and really make some headway into this plot that they have have established but they had to get a lot of the past flashback stuff out of the way before they could do it. So I think at the moment they've done a pretty good job of it. Um, with regard to chicken salads, um, I almost have to address this in two parts, the idea of like the characterization, which I spoke about last week, because the events of the present timeline are directly influenced and informed by all the flashback sequences, obviously. So what I liked about this week's episode, I suppose, in the present, is that We've already seen a, a change in attitude and approach from Boba Fett. He tried to play nice last week. He was stern, but he was respectful and he was open. This week he walks into town sort of showing his face, if you will, if you know what I mean. He walks down the main thoroughfare of Moss Esper. He's got the prisoner in tow with him. He's holding his gun and he's got the helmet on. Last week he wasn't doing that. Last week he was more diplomatic. This week he's not messing around. This week he's for effect, he's Boba Fett. It was a classic, you know, Western gunslinger rolls into town with the reputation and everyone, you know, looks up from the bar, everyone scurries inside and I thought that was really good, I really liked that. You know, he was portrayed as strong and stoic and not someone to be stuffed with. Um, I also spoke last week about him just being a good dude. You know, and this this episode really doubles down on that, which is nice. He's not an anti-hero, which would have been the easiest thing in the world to make him. Would have been the easiest thing in the world for him to just be, just be a badass, you know, um, too cool for school. Geez, I don't necessarily agree with what he's doing here because oh, he's pretty close to the line. But he's, geez, he's, he's a cool guy. No, like he's he's not a morally ambiguous character at all. You know, he has honor, and I think that's really important. Um, and I think at the moment that's been done really, really well. So, you know, credit to um, particularly John Favreau, but, um, you know, Timua Morrison as well, who, who's taken, let's be real, like a pretty one-dimensional kind of character from what we've seen so far. Um, had a little bit of colour with, with Django Fett, but in two episodes he's taken that potentially one-dimensional character and made him 
really fascinating. Um, he's made him really full, like he's made him, um, you know, consistent and, and sort of really sort of interesting to get behind. You want to know more about him, which is great. I really liked um, the uh, Maori influence. You know, clearly from Temuara Morrison was, was really stark on, on showing this particular episode. It certainly feels as though he was or would have been very heavily involved in that aspect of um, Boba Fett's characterization and how he's been presented. A lot of tribal stuff, um, you know, and, and uh, he's spoken about this in the past at length, obviously, from his own history and his own personal life. And he's done, you know, um, uh, Once for Warriors and the like and, and, and spoken even about the Maori stuff um, when he did Attack of the Clones, which was interesting, but that was really on show this week. Um, and it served the it served the character, it served the plot, it fit brilliantly, um, and I think it really again is something that enriched enriched not just the lore of Boba Fett, but the lore of the Tuscan Raiders who he was um, sort of integrating with at the time. Um, and I think it was it played really really well. It was great. Uh, I quite liked you know further to that as he's sort of getting to grips and and coming to know that tribe, um, which was the, the sort of key heart of the episode, the sort of what the hell is going on hallucination scene, you know, from his from the flashback sequence. Again, just really strong lore and world building. Um, you know, he wanders off into the desert uh, to participate in a Tuscan Raider sort of tribal ritual, almost kind of like a, a coming of age, you know, um, rite, rite of passage sort of thing. Um, that's almost an induction. And it actually kind of reminded me of the um, that really great scene in 300 where the you know young Leonidas as part of the Spartan ritual you know that the, the youngsters go off into the into the winter cold and have to face whatever gets thrown at them and Leonidas had his moment coming you know face to face with the wolf and um, it was sort of like a formative moment in his life it's a it's a classic fantasy you know um, trope but here it was played you know, really really fun you know uh, Boba was he was given like this lizard GPS which sort of was really weird and fun I thought for a second it kind of crawled up into his into his brain stem through his nose and I thought is he gonna have that is that gonna be is that a lizard gonna be in his melon forever <laughs> so like in five years time when he's wandering through Mos Esper he's actually got a lizard in his head not that it's a big deal but it, it kind of reminded me of uh that scene in Aquaman where they go to like the center of the earth and it's really like Jules Vernian. It's quite interesting and different and unexpected. And it's like Aquaman's roaming around this yeah, center of the earth weird place. And it struck me watching it in the cinema that while he's doing this, Batman is doing something on the surface. So he's inter- like he's wandering around, like interacting potentially with dinosaurs. He could maybe, Aquaman, he could maybe ride a dinosaur or fight a dinosaur, you know, whatever. Got floating you know, mountains in the sky, like the cover of that Yes album or fucking Avatar. But like Bruce Wayne as Batman, he's just, he's doing, you know, on the surface, he's doing something. He might be sleeping. He could be, you like going out to bars and, you know, watching bare knuckle brawls. But he's, I just thought, this is weird, isn't it? Batman exists in this. Ben Affleck's Batman exists in this world he's doing something at this very moment show me that show me what he's doing better yet get him down here 
and have him interact with the dinosaurs. Weird. Anyway, um, he obviously goes on this little adventure, this coming-of-age sort of ritual, guides him to this ancient tree. I really love the flashbacks. You've got the really sort of um, disorientating stuff, of, you know, point of view, if you will, of what Bobba was going through and what he was seeing and um, the flashes of him sort of wandering in the desert of the mask of his his life on Camino, watching his father leave, you know, so that, that bond, that connection again that we saw a very, very brief glimpse of last week, but this idea of he was, what, 10 years old when his quote-unquote father dies, the effect that had on him, the isolation it caused for him, not potentially understanding necessarily what his dad did or does. It was really nice, nice little sort of beats, which were really cool. Um, obviously, it, his, uh, his uh, interaction with the tree was mirrored by his sort of interactions in the, um, in the Sarlacc, which were cool. Um, and then at the end, when he kind of comes back, he comes back with this branch, you know, big, big sort of branch, and that gets fashioned into his Jaffe stick. And I was like, again, this is just good law building. Up to this point, that stick that the Tuscans wave around is just like a just a primitive weapon, you know, wielded by a primitive people. And what this episode did a great job of showing us is, no, there's actually a really sort of profound, uh, profound individual meaning behind each of their weapons in, in much the same way, you know, a Jedi's lightsaber is, is constructed and designed by them to reflect their personality, pay tribute to their master, you know, built by hand by them. It was a really nice kind of mirroring moment of that where you've got the generations, thousands of generations old Jedi, or their customs are the same as this thousands of generations old primitive sand-dwelling tribe. So I thought that was really nice. Um, It was cool too that like, part of me, I was sort of going, oh, initially I was like, we haven't seen him do a lightsaber, but we kind of have. There's been some cartoons, Clone Wars, and um, maybe even the, the... uh, Kennedy Tartakovsky one might have done something with the lightsabers. But again, that was sort of cool and you kind of... Tartakovsky did a Jedi, the Anakin becoming a knight. He was not a Padawan anymore, which was sort of cool to see. That's not canon anymore, whatever. We'll get sidetracked onto that. Um, but yeah, I thought that was a really cool moment to show us that this is sort of crossing the T's, dotting the I's of him earning a place in their tribe which is completed with them giving him, like, his official Tuscan Raider black robe, his, like, uniform, which was nice. Um, so I like that. Again, good character-building stuff, good lore-building stuff, and, again, propelling the plot and getting us to where we need the story to be in present day, which is cool. Um, and the other chicken salad, to be honest, despite what I said above about the A and B storylines playing out in different timelines... Um, I only said that because, like I said, it can make things tricky if one starts to dominate the other or jump it too far ahead of the other, be more engaging than the other. I think that the flashback stuff will have to run its course sooner rather than later, as I said, because it will have to catch up with the story. Um, but the present day, what I like, what we're seeing at the moment, is that the present day storyline is you know, like a fun, it's like a gangster or like a mob film. You know, in a lot of ways, taking a lot of cues from something like The Godfather, where, you know, maybe that's too obvious a comparison, but the idea of Michael having to take over his father's concern, surviving assassination attempts, you know, dealing with rival syndicates, trying to muscle in on his territory, obviously all the while trying to establish his own reputation and his own mode and method for running the family. You know, a lot of that's kind of happening with Boba Fett's 
getting his feet under the desk, getting acquainted with local custom, local tribes, trying to stress that he's not a pushover and flexing his muscle, you know, when and where he needs to to impress upon anyone who might see themselves as a rival that that's not the right thing to do. Um, that extends, obviously, from just the local ground-level gangs now to the big hut crime syndicate, which is cool. And then the flashback storylines are obviously playing out as, like, classic Star Wars Western samurai hybrids, you know, think like a Dancers with Wolves, or I mentioned Avatar before, that sort of, you know, Fern Gully, that idea of the outsider being taken in by the indigenous tribe. We've seen it all before, but, we, you know, integrates with them. He teaches them how to fight and how to defeat their foe. There's a cool sequence where he's, he's he brings them speeder bikes, you know, which are obviously stand-ins for horses, and he's teaching them how to ride the speeder bikes, um, which is cool. And then sort of culminating again with like a fun inverted look on robbing the stagecoach is that the stagecoach or the, the train is the threat. It's not a target, but it's the threat. Um, and then by extension of that, helping them overcome this foe who more technologically advanced than them, um, more sort of Godfather type stuff. I was actually reminded of, you know, the young Vito storyline thread where he's establishing relationships you know, via goodwill and loyalty, via goodwill. He starts with one relationship with this tribe that's going to grow by word of mouth, not just from Tuscan Raiders, but from these enemies as well who are going to obviously speak of their dealings with this guy. He's not to be trifled with. He knows what he's doing. You know, in this one, um, he, he sends these guys, you know, back to their base without killing them and says that, you know, let that be um, an indicator of our civility we, we aren't, you know, a bloodthirsty, uh, nasty sort of tribe. You know, we could have killed you. We could have sent a message if we'd killed you. Um, but we're going to send a message by sending you back alive. Um, so that was cool. Again, more good world building, more good character building stuff, which was nice. Um, and then further to that, I really like that the, the show is it's sort of showing us that Tatooine is this lawless, dangerous place. You know, A New Hope told us that, but they told us that it was... You know, the Tusken Raiders were the dangerous the ones out there. And while they are, like Boba Fett, we, the audience, don't really know enough about it. So it's great that the show is showing us how volatile the whole place is through his eyes. You know, he would, of course, he would have an idea of how lawless and dangerous the place is, but he wouldn't have experienced it on that ground level. So to be with him as he's doing that and as he's learning, we're learning with him, um, it's it's really strong storytelling, which is great. Um the speeder bikes. I liked that he went head to head with and defeated the Tatooine chapter of the Comancheros in the flashback. Um, sort of went to this bar and beat the crap out of these guys and took their speeder bikes, um, which was cool. Um, and I think <laughs> that was sort of like a feisty renegade biker group, which was sort of it was quite fun. Um, but he went there and he beat them up. And his attitude again was that he will help the locals or the people in need because he because he can and because he should. So again, it's just adding to the little checklist now of examples of him being a good dude, doing the right thing, being a man of honour. Just great. It's really, really good stuff. Um, I spoke last week of him needing to be a little bit more capable in a skirmish and whilst he was taking on the uh, the biker mice from Mars, um, 
certainly not the biggest or baddest enemy he'll face uh, during the series, I'm sure. Um, we got the bar fight with the gang, and he just cleans house you know, efficiently, as he should do. A man of his sort of reputation and purported abilities um, should be able to clean house and, and do what he did, and he, he did it did it well. So that was another good, good I suppose, advancement from last week where maybe he's a bit rusty and he's not quite up to speed and he gets knocked around a little bit. This week he's no-nonsense, beats the crap out of him, takes their bikes and leaves, which was, which was nice. I like that. Another chicken salad was the just the politics of the Hutt family. We only got a very brief look at them this week, but um, it was cool to kind of see it unfold that as powerful as Jabba was on Tatooine, as far as the Hutt sort of crime empire... You know, what did Luke say? If, if there's a um, bright centre of the universe, you're on the star that's farthest from. You know, Tatooine is just, it's just a backwater planet. So as big as the Hutt's crime syndicate was, as powerful as Jabba was on Tatooine, it sort of feels like it might have just been a, a small outpost in the grand scheme of things. You know, he had his, his empire, but it wasn't a sprawling empire by any means. And I like the idea that um, talk of Boba wanting to kill a hut, you know, he has to ask permission. It's like killing Billy Bats. You know, you, you can't kill a made man. Thought that was quite cool. Um, the, the the ending of the standoff, you know, was a little bit potentially not frustrating, but just oh yeah, okay, all right, we'll push pause on this for a little while. Then, you know, how many weeks until we come back to this? You know, the huts end end the uh, interaction by saying bloodshed is bad for business, um, and and this can wait for later. It's as if the show was introducing the element and then saying, we can't deal with this 10 minutes into episode two, so we'll come back to it later. We'll set it up, and for the time being, that's good enough. So, you know, once again, that's another wait and see. We'll, we'll see how that plays out and pans out. Their Wookiee Enforcer was pretty cool. He looked a bit meaner and a, look, you know, a bit broader, um, almost like a predator in a way. He was sort of a, a nasty-looking Wookiee, which was cool. I'm sure we'll see something with him as the season goes on. And then lastly, very early in the episode when they're threatening the uh, would-be assassin, um, they, they they say that we're going to suggest that we're going to um, throw you in with the Rancor. So they open up the trapdoor, he falls down into it, we get the setup and the shot, you know, shot for shot of when Luke falls in, which was a cool little throwback. They had to do it. They had to tip the hat to it. They had to play in that sandbox. And for a moment they kind of played with us because you, you're wondering... How is this going to play out and what's going to happen? You know, they, they threaten the prisoner with being eaten by this disgusting monster. It was cool that this assassin knows all about what happens to those who fall through that trapdoor and into that pit. Um, and, of course, the psych out is that he gives up the information um, before it can be revealed that there's actually nothing down there anymore. The Rancor is dead. Um, that we know that he's dead. Um, so that, that was a bit of fun. That was kind of a cool sort of double bluff for him and the audience um, I suppose read the chicken shits or negatives. There wasn't really anything, to be honest. Um, I really thought it was a, a particularly solid outing um, with lots of really good stuff as I've just gone through. So nothing nothing really that stood out to me as um, chicken shit worthy, to be honest. Um, I suppose that vignetting was still happening and the warping of the frame. A couple examples of that as the episode wore on that I was a bit, not annoyed, but just noticed. Um, that's not a chicken shit, though. And then just in closing, some sort of odds and ends thoughts that didn't really fit into a chicken salad or a chicken shit or any of the other stuff. Um, I wonder how much of his flashback pre 
Tuscan Raider uniform look is meant to be inspired by Charlton Heston in Planet of the Apes. Because if you if you look at him in this tattered white jumpsuit, I'm not sure if it's a deliberate thing, I'm not sure if I'm meant to go to here, but it lo- he looks a bit like Charlton Heston in Planet of the Apes with the white tattered jumpsuit. Something to think about, something to look up. Um, Disney continue to play fast and loose with the runtimes. Last week was like 38 minutes, this week was like 54 or something. No issues with that, it's just an observation. It would be interesting to see the show play out with like a set runtime, like on network TV, where it just goes for 42 minutes every week, and whether that would sort of straighten up plotting and pacing. I suppose the showrunners would argue that they don't have the creative constraints of network TV, and they'll just use up as much time as they need to each week to tell the story that they're telling. They'd probably tell me to get fucked well within their rights to do so. Uh, and then lastly, old mate Max Rebo, back. He's still there, still playing. It looks like he's got the house band gig at... Uh, they did name the, that establishment, but I didn't write it down. But he looks like he's got the gig there. He's, he's um, in a bit of a two-man act. But it's good to see Max, you know, getting work at... Uh, didn't look good for him when he was on that um, Jabber's Barge, but as we discussed last week, he got off. He's living his life. He's back into his music. It's good to see. Um, so overall... In closing, uh, gave this week's episode a A. Solid A. Last week was a B. I uh, thought this week's episode was really strong. A really good watch. Lots of interesting stuff that propelled the story forward in a meaningful way. Um, told us a lot about characters we need to know more about, which is important. Um, and has us kind of really well poised now to get stuck into the meat of what this story ends up being. So... A really good, really strong outing. A grade for me. Um, look forward to watching where the series goes next week. Um, if you do listen in and like um, what I'm doing here, please let me know. Um, feedback is always very much appreciated. Um, any thoughts you had on the episode itself, um, definitely wax with me, get in touch with me. I'd be keen to hear what you think about where the series is going, how it's going, what you think might happen. Uh, so until next time, thanks very much for listening. We'll speak to you then.